The book of Acts is basically the history of the early church. It was written by Luke, approximately 60 to 62 A.D., from Caesarea and Rome. You should have gotten a map uh, two weeks ago when we started this series. If you didn't get one, we've got some extras in the, in the uh, uh, foyer on the credenza. Uh, and so feel free to grab one of those. Now, you ha- if you have your own Bible, whatever form that is, you probably have a map somewhere. So you're certainly welcome to use that one. But if you don't have a good map in your Bible or you're using your phone or your pad or whatever and you, know, you don't have a map there, please feel free to grab one of those and just tuck it wherever you can find it when we get to that point when Paul starts his missionary journeys. We know that Luke took his information from his own personal experiences, from witnesses that he talked to, that word witness 29 times, he'll use that in the book of Luke. And and if you know Jesus, that's what you are, you're a witness. Not just here on a Sunday morning or Wednesday nights when we gather for great food, which will start Wednesday, but anywhere you go 24-7, if you know Jesus, you're a disciple, you're a missionary, you're a witness. No exceptions. All of us are. And as we learn to live that out, as we grow in our faith, God wants to use us both inside and outside the walls of the church to bear witness of who he is. That's the whole point. It's not for our comfort or convenience, although it's nice to be comfortable and, you know, life is nice when it's convenient, but uh, that's not the point. The point is to bear witness of God's kingdom that there is a way of life here on this earth as well as a life to come that God has for those in Christ Jesus. A living hope because Jesus is alive as we already sang about earlier. Luke wants to record what the early church did, what they did well what they didn't do so well, so that we can learn as the church today about what to do well and try to avoid those things that aren't so well or good. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today, starting in verse 1 through verse 26. You know, when the Lord begins something, uh, a movement, if you want to call it, that's a good, you know, religious term, so to speak, a a movement of God, uh, a mission of God, whatever term kind of resonates with you, Uh, typically he's thinking way bigger than we are. Now you think about the early disciples. Most of them were Jewish in background. Luke was not. So he's writing about this this, uh, movement that has started with Jewish roots. Jesus himself grew up in a Jewish home, fulfilled the prophecies about him in the Old Testament, will continue to fulfill those in his return uh, at some point in the future. And so But the disciples tended to think very politically, didn't they? Remember in John, we kept talking about that. They were thinking of a Messiah being a political savior. Now, we can relate to that. You know, I mean, if you haven't, unless you've been off the planet for a while, it's obvious that we're going to have an election a year from this fall, right? And man, it's everywhere. And there's a, you know, horde of people trying to get the Democratic nomination and And unless something changes, President Trump's going for a second term. And so, you know, everybody's trying to present themselves as, in a sense, the Messiah of America. I'm going to just do everything you ever dreamed of. Well, in a far greater way, the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament literally was that person who would come and would set up a kingdom, and it was like none other. But the Jewish people were limited in their scope in that their vision was for kind of for themselves. Now, I don't want to say that like they were selfish, If I grew up that way, I'd probably think that way too. It's all about our people. 
Well, God wanted to blow the doors off that vision, and he did so through the Gentile world. And he said, no, it's not just for Jerusalem or Judea, but it's also for those cruddy Samaritans. Oh, my goodness, those are bad people, aren't they? Yeah, well, I love them too, just as much as you. So you think about the people group maybe that you have a struggle with. We need to always remember God loves them just as much as he loves every people group, including us. And to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth to them was about 1,400 miles away, Rome. Man, I drove 1,400 miles in a couple of days taking my daughter to Colorado. That's nothing. (laughs) But for a guy walking or on a donkey or on a ship back in those days, that was a long way from home. God's vision is worldwide. And he invites us to be part of that. See, he's not limited just to <clears throat> Shafter, California. <clears throat> Excuse me. I get kind of choked up about this stuff. He, he's not limited just to Shafter, California on a Sunday morning. He says, let's go worldwide with this. And we have. Over 100 years, our church has been used by God to plant a church in Burkina Faso. We'll hear about that later in November from Phil and Carol Bergen, who are now back from that field. And it doesn't, doesn't seem possible But you see, God gave them a worldwide vision. May God give all of us a worldwide vision beyond our comfort zone, beyond our convenience, because he wants to give us power through the Holy Spirit to fulfill his vision, not just ours. And that's the early church, and that's churches today. Most of the time, our visions are way too small, way too small. Let's have a God-sized vision for how he wants to continue to use this particular group at this particular time, in this particular community. And may it be God-sized. May he just burden our heart for the things that he wants to do. And he's looking for witnesses, just like you and me. Frail people who do not have power in themselves, nor enough talent to build the church, but the Holy Spirit sure can. And we're going to read about him in just a minute. Let's pray and then look into God's Word. Father, thank you for the time you've given us this morning uh, to worship you. As we wait upon you, Lord, that word wait's a tough one, especially in our culture. We want things now, and we want them faster. We look for faster internet speed, and faster this and faster that, and you tell us to wait. Because when we wait, we receive the best, and the best is you. And so we wait upon you, Lord, at this moment, at this day, at this time, for your best. And we know your best has been sent in Jesus. Your best is given in God, the Holy Spirit, as we rest in Him, as we are empowered by Him, and as we'll learn guided by Him and used by Him to be witnesses throughout the world. But it's hard to wait, Lord. And what a beautiful name, the name of Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. It's in Jesus and Him alone that we find salvation, not of ourselves that anybody should vote. It's not by our works of righteousness. It's not by our church attendance. It's not by being baptized or joining a church or doing good things. It's all by your grace, that amazing grace that Sharon led us in earlier. Help us to never forget that. It's all by your love and grace and mercy. May we bear witness in the power of the Spirit of that to people who are trying to be good enough for heaven all around us, not realizing they'll never make it. May we carry the message of grace in our lives, no matter where we go and what we do, Lord. And may you use us as your spirit-filled, empowered witnesses throughout the world. 
Teach us now, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we're going to be worldwide witnesses, and, you know, beyond Kern County and California and the United States, on planet Earth, wherever God leads us, or he sends members of our church like Phil and Keller or others in the future, we've got to have power and guidance. We're going to learn that in verses 1 through 11. The worldwide witnesses need power and guidance. You don't just start off on your own, but you need the strength to go and you need someone guiding you, and that someone is the Holy Spirit. Luke says in my former book, which Sue read the opening verses of, the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this instruction. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized, or that word baptized can also be incorporated into it. It's an identification with a, a person or a movement, in this case, God himself, through the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Small vision, right? It's all about us, right? <laughs> no, no, all through the book of John we learn, oh, you guys, come on, think bigger than just Israel. Yes, it's about Israel and the Gentile world and the Samaritans, those hated people, and the people throughout the rest of the world. Yes, I'm going to restore it, but it's going to be so much bigger than you can imagine. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That Holy Spirit comes on a person when, we, when they trust Jesus. They are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, the down payment guaranteeing what is yet to come, Ephesians chapter 1. The Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. 29 times in the book he'll talk about that. Witness or witnesses in Jerusalem, in your home, in all Judea, in your, beyond your home, maybe your comfort zone, in Samaria, oh my goodness, going to uncomfortable places, people you may not like or love, but God does, and so he wants to use us as witnesses to go there, and to the ends of the earth, and at least for them it was 1,400 miles. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight cloud there is probably not just some weather issue of the day, but the cloud probably refers more to his glory. Often when God would appear, especially in the Old Testament, he would appear in a, in a cloud of glory. So that's probably more of a reference to that. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white, not from Kentucky Fried Chicken, but most likely angels, some versions say that, stood beside them, men of Galilee. They said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. In other words, visibly and in glory. And you will have the way you have seen him go into heaven. Worldwide witnesses like us need power and guidance. Now Luke begins his writing by, in a sense, summarizing the gospel that he also authored. 
if you turn to the end of Luke, in fact, many scholars believe that Luke's writing of this was kind of part two of his gospel. Now, we don't have it arranged that way in our Bibles. That doesn't mean anything's wrong. It just meant as people put the New Testament together, they put the gospels together, and then they went into Luke or went into Acts. But if you read Luke and then go directly into Acts, it all kind of clicks and, and fits together. So starting in verse 24, starting in verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now this, what are they talking about? They're talking about the experience on the road to Emmaus. Uh, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and blood as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you to what my father has promised. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And where is that power coming from? The Holy Spirit, who he said he would send. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And then if you were to start up again in Acts chapter 1, you'd see Luke kind of rehearsing this a little bit, and then talking about the Holy Spirit and the same ascension. So you see how they two, the two tie together. Verses 1 through 5 of Luke, I will, or Acts, I won't read that again. Uh, we've already read that, but you, you can ref, re, review it yourself and see how those two die together. But if you go back to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 that uh, Sue read earlier, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things they have, that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, one question people ask is, who's this Theophilus guy? Well, Theophilus is believed was what we know, he was an unknown figure, not one who was uh, well known to the early church, but apparently Luke did know him. He may have been what some call Luke's uh, patron who underwrote his expenses as he traveled and as he compiled the book of Acts as well as the gospel. And also some believe he may have been a Roman official, one who was in some kind of an official status and said, and knew Luke who was a doctor, Maybe he was his own doctor, and he said, I need to know about this guy, Jesus, and this movement that is now being called the church. And so Luke had an assignment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but God used this man, Theophilus, to also accomplish that purpose. Now, the disciples asked Jesus a question that 
we talked about already, they were wondering about this coming kingdom. His answer steered them back to the promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 5 that would give them power and guidance. And the angelic messengers, these men in white, assured the disciples of Jesus' return in the same way that he ascended visibly and in glory. Now, another question is, well, why did Jesus go have to go back to heaven? Why did he go? Well, Dr. Warren Wiersbe reminds us... It, of his role, his ongoing role in heaven. And he kept telling the disciples, unless I go away, I will not send the comforter, the helper, the one that he talked about in John 16. So one of the purposes of Jesus' ascension was to send the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. Another ongoing role he has is he's now our interceding high priest, if you will, in heaven, according to Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, and he's also our advocate or literally our defense lawyer in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. So it's as though Jesus' earthly ministry was finished, but his ministry continues through his ongoing work in heaven, on your behalf, on my behalf, on behalf of his people. The angelical messengers also are reminding the people that not only did he ascend, and and we understand now his ongoing ministry in heaven, but also we talked about how he will return someday. And the Apostle John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of John, writes this in Revelation chapter 1 from the Isle of Patmos. When he was exiled and the Roman officials thought, let's get rid of this guy, let's just banish him. God knew all along that's where he wanted to take him so he could listen, he could wait, and he could learn, and he could write down what we're going to read next. Or Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Look, speaking of Jesus, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. You see, there was an initial the incarnation of Jesus through Mary. There was the resurrection of Jesus after three days. There was the ascension of Jesus, our high priest and our advocate. Well, he's coming back someday. And when he comes back, every eye will see and every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and declare Jesus Christ and him alone is Lord, period. That's the future. That's the future that God gives the believer of Christ. But in the meantime, we are called to be witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit wherever he chooses to take us. The church today continues to need the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we are certainly no exception. No church is an exception to that. We desperately need the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit because he is the one who indwells the church and guides it as though Jesus himself were here doing it. Because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, God himself, to empower us, to guide us, to help us, to gift us, so that we might fulfill the Father's will here on earth. The interesting article in uh, Everance, which used to be Mennonite Mutual Aid, and we used to call it MMA, and then it got confused with mixed martial arts. And uh, that's a real Mennonite thing, huh? Yeah, let's go beat people up. In one of the latest toolkits put out by Everance, Uh, talking about remembering the importance of the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance that we need. Here's what one political figure did. Now, I don't know this man. I'm guessing he's a believer in Christ. Maybe some of you know him better. I got on his website and tried to check him out to find out, who is this guy, man? 
But here's what it said. Maybe you wrote this, you read this too. It starts by saying, actual stack of Bibles. The governor of Ohio took a unique approach when he was sworn in at midnight, January 14th of this past year, or of this year. Um, Governor Mike DeWine, I'm not sure if it's DeWine or Devine is how he pronounce it, D-E-W-I-N-E, placed his hand on a stack of nine family Bibles held by his wife. I'd like to see his wife, you know. She had to do like, you know, deep knee bends to get ready. By his wife, Fran, the DeWines wanted a Bible to represent each of their eight children, reported USA Today. The Bibles included one given to the governor's grandmother by her father, a minister over a hundred years ago. That's pretty cool. So what does that tell me? Let's just assume for a minute that Governor DeWine is a follower of Jesus. He is visibly reminding himself and his family and anybody who happened to be there, including USA Today, which last I checked is not a Christian publication, that God's word and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit who inspired every writer of God's word is important to him. That he cannot fulfill his obligation as the governor of Ohio without the power and the presence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we cannot fulfill our ministry at Shafter Mennonite Brethren Church inside and outside the walls of this church without the power and the presence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and, incidentally, God's Word. So what does that mean to us then? Well, we need to be students of God's Word. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. The context of Zechariah is after the Babylonian captivity, which was in 586 B.C. In 539 B.C., the Assyrians came in and whooped on the Babylonians and the, and the new uh, conqueror said, hey, you Jewish people, you can go home now. You can go set up your, your tabernacle or your temple again because that represented their worship. So Zechariah along with uh, Ezra and some other leaders went back to Israel and they, they began the process of rebuilding the temple. Now, when you think of it, you think, well, it's like they built the church. Yeah, but it meant more than just a building. It represented their faith because that's how they worship was through the temple and all the ceremonies that went with it. So it's like saying you got to go back there and rebuild your faith, okay? So in the midst of that, Zechariah has many visions, and the Ze- Zechariah is filled with visions, one of which is a gold lampstand and a gold uh, olive tree type thing. And there's a lot of discussion on, you know, the symbolism of that. But here's the bottom line that that it represents. And Zechariah asks the angelic messenger who shows him these, what do these mean? What is this telling me? And here's what he says in verse 6 of chapter 4. So he said to me, the angel, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a priest who was helping with the rebuilding process. Not by might nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You see, it's not by our might or power. It's not by our ingenuity. It's not by our resources that we build God's church here at Shafter MB. It's by the Holy Spirit. By the power of his written word, which we are to be students of constantly. It's through prayer through engaging ourselves in special places like men's and women's prayer groups and small groups and at home and as couples and Sunday school classes, small group coming at 9 o'clock. 
the power of prayer is just unlimited as we call on the name of the Lord. It's, it's through worship. It's through ministering. It's through caring for one another and, and doing what God calls us to do that the church is built all in the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And without it, we, in many ways, we cease to be a church. We're just a social club called Chapter Mennonite Brethren. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can gain a worldwide vision that will take us far beyond what we ever imagined. Is that what you want? Man, I hope so. Because I desperately want that for myself and for our church family. To have a vision so big, we just go, oh man, this is huge. We can't do this. No, we can't. But God can. And as we rely on the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, He will perhaps take us places in the future we have never been before. Kind of like Star Trek, but even better. Well, worldwide witnesses also need godly leadership. Verses 12 through 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. Now, how far is a Sabbath day's walk? Well, if we looked in the Old Testament law, it would say you could walk about 3,000 steps or 3,000 feet, uh, which would be about a half a mile. And so if you're going home today, just count your steps. Don't try to get 10,000 in about, you know, 3,000 is your limit. No. <laughs> Anyway, that, that kind of answers that question. So it's about a half a mile from the Mount of Olives where the ascension took place back to Jerusalem where they were staying. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers who came to faith in Jesus. At first they were writing him off. Like, who is this guy? You, you go up to that ceremony by yourself, Jesus, and show him who you are. Remember that in the book of John? In those days, Peter stood up, a restored Peter. Peter, the, the one who could put his foot in his mouth at times, but God refined to become a leader of the early church, stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Now that number 120 is significant because in the eyes of Jewish people watching, you had to have at least 120 to be considered a community of faith in that day, a synagogue, a a group that would have legitimacy. So not that they were conforming to the law. It was almost as though God were saying, I'm going to raise up enough people to be legitimate in the eyes of the outsiders looking in. And said, Peter said, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. Now we know in Matthew chapter 27, he didn't buy the field. He threw the money back, that 30 pieces of silver, but a field was bought in a sense in his name because it was considered blood money and they couldn't use it in the temple because the Jewish religious leaders were so nitpicky in some ways and so terrible in other ways. But So they bought a field, and that was the field that he hung himself in. He fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Now, there's lots of theories on how did that happen. Well, we know he hung himself. 
Chances are he may have hung himself over some kind of a ravine or a, or, or kind of a low spot so that he couldn't, you know, his toes wouldn't touch the dirt or whatever. Well, you hang there for a while and all of a sudden a limb breaks that you're hanging from or the rope breaks and down you go. Well, by this time the body is bloated and things happen. So that seems to be the most common explanation of how that particular thing. The point is he was dead a long time ago. He just happened to fall and that's the result of it. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this so they called that field in their language Akaldama which is field of blood. For said Peter it is written in the book of Psalms. Psalms 69 and 109 are the two references. May his place be deserted let there be no one to dwell in it and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism, which we read in the Gospels, to the time where Jesus was taken up from us, the ascension, for one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. That word witness again. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. So the, the disciples did what Jesus said. They went back to Jerusalem, and they waited, and they waited, and they prayed, and they trusted and it sounds like their numbers may have grown a little bit. And, and they became that group of 120, in a sense, legitimate in the eyes of the outsiders looking at it. Peter, as he addresses the followers of Christ, reminds them of this prophetic desertion of Judas. But also reminds them that the Old Testament says, we've got to replace him. And now the thinking behind that, again, they're, they're thinking in, through Jewish minds... Jesus tells them in Luke chapter 22, verses 29 to 30. Well, let me talk about the, the use of lots first, because that's sometimes a question. The lot, let me tell you what one Bible scholar says, so I don't just jump around here. All the offices and the duties in the temple were settled by lot, which was almost like a piece of dice in a way. The names of the candidates were written on stones. The stones were put into a vessel, and the vessel was shaken until one stone fell out, and whose name was on the stone, first stone to fall out, was elected to the particular office. So in this case, Matthias was that stone that came out. In this way, the foundation for the new Israel was made complete in this particular setting. So they used it in the Old Testament. These were Jewish people, and they thought, well, we better draw lots and use what God has designed. But it's important to know that this is the last mention of the use of lots in the entire Bible. And so after the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, we'll, we'll see that fade away. Now, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, talks about how God still sovereignly controls that. It says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So the Lord is still in that process. That's not just, hey, let's go play dice and see who wins. Okay, you're the leader now. You know, it was a process that God developed in the Old Testament, but it ended in the new. In Luke chapter 22, we also see the apostles, or the apostles are very mindful of 
what God is trying to do here by bringing Matthias in as that new leader. Luke chapter 22, in verses 29 through 30, he says this. And I confer on you, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and I confer on you, the disciples, these 12 apostles, a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in that future time of judgment, that time after Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom and the judgments we read about in places like the book of Revelation, the 12 apostles will be part of that judgment process. Now, one was missing. Judas was, because of his own desertion, which was prophesied, he was replaced. Matthias was put in there. And so that, in a sense, both prophecies were fulfilled of Judas being the traitor and then Matthias being the replacement in that particular setting. So what's the point? Well, like the early church, the church today needs godly, spirit-filled leadership. I'm sure by now you've gotten the point that we all need the power, the filling, and filling of the Holy Spirit. We think of, you know, like up and down. Filling implies in the New Testament more control of. In other words, who's on the throne of your life? That's an old Campus Crusade illustration. If you imagine in your heart of hearts, so to speak, the control room of your life, is it Jesus Christ? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it God the Father? In other words, God himself calling the shots in your life? Or is it you? Well, if it's you, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You're controlling your own destiny. You're calling the shots. You're the captain of your ship. And you know what? Your ship is going to wreck on the rocks of life. But if you put God on the throne, and you say, Lord, I, re I release everything in my life to you. Everything, not most of it. Everything, because you know so much more than I do. You are so much greater and bigger and knowledgeable. And everything about my, you, you know my life better than I do. So I'm going to release all of this to you. And I want you to control me, Holy Spirit. That's filling. And when we are filled, we are guided. When we are guided, we are empowered. And we become that living, breathing witness of Jesus Christ wherever we go. But we need leadership. We need people who can guide us, who can help make decisions. And we are in the midst of that right now as a church, as you know. Many of you receive these at home, or you may have picked one up here at church. Mennonite Brethren Church, members of the church, from the church council, election of council person, moderator, nominating committee, and deacons. We need to take this very, very seriously. Because the people that are elected, that God calls, and that he uses his body to call make determinations on ministries and what to do and what not to do and, and all the different things that guide our church family. Not to replace the Holy Spirit, but to be used by the Holy Spirit to provide leadership. So I would just encourage each of us to pray about that and to participate as God leads you in putting those names forth and trusting the Lord for His guidance ultimately in who, I don't want to say calls the shots because that's not the nature of our church leaders, but who gives guidance and makes decisions to our church ministries. We're also starting in kind of a new, just an adjunct committee, if you will. We've had this before called a master planning committee. We did this years ago when we started our building project because we realized anytime you redo something or add something, especially like at your homes, you think, oh my 
you know, if we're going to add this over here, then it's going to affect this over here, and we better do this over here. So we are kind of at that point again in a physical way where we believe we need a master planning committee, which has been formed, and some of you are on that, to meet and look at the physical structure, the technical needs, and say, what are some things we need to be working on? We want to stay up with technology. We want to make sure things look nice, that they are welcoming, and so on and so forth. You know, does the campus make sense to visitors, and so on and so forth. But also that committee will be taking some time to look at the ministries of our church and asking some questions. Is this still working? Is this still a relevant ministry for where we are today? Is there something that needs to be changed or added or deleted or so forth? And so as that committee meets month by month and the goal is to be done by the end of the year and then bring recommendations to the council and other boards, pray about that. Pray about that because those are observation decisions that are being made on the behalf of the body to try to be as effective as we can in the location that God has placed us in. As I worked on this this week, and, and I'm certainly not an expert on, on the American church. Don't ever, don't ever think that. <laughs> I'm not even an expert on our church. I'm not an expert on any church, to be honest. I'm a pastor who loves Jesus and loves you and, and wants to be faithful to our calling here together. But my observation of the American church in particular is that one of the temptations the American church as a whole and I'll just say ours in particular, but as a whole, I think one of the temptations of the American church is to rely on resources other than the Holy Spirit. Money, status, power, denominational issues, the list goes on. And those things, although they're part of how God works, don't get me wrong, we need money to pay the bills and this kind of thing. We need resources to use of various kinds. But my friends, without the Holy Spirit, we're dead in the water. Absolutely dead in the water. And so our first go-to has got to always be the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit filling and controlling and using you and me, all of us together, to bear witness. That's number one. The other things will take their appropriate place because they're all going to pass away. But God and his kingdom will never pass away. So we go to him first. Along with that, I think also in American culture is a certain independent self-reliance. Now that has its values. We can take initiative, a lot of opportunities come our way and that's good. But sometimes when we bring that mindset to the church, it it makes it a little more difficult to work as a body because we're not willing to submit to one another out of love or honor one another out of love. It's my way. And it's never my way. It's always God's way. And so collectively we pray and we seek the Lord and we submit to Him and to one another and say, Lord, what is it that you want to do here, not is it what we want to do here? So you see the difference? You see, it's God's vision for this church, how he wants to use us today and in the days ahead, not just in chapter, but literally worldwide. And we've got to catch that vision. The only way I know how to do that is through God's word and through prayer, through worship, and just being lifted into the heavens and saying, Lord, what is it that you want? Help me to be willing to do whatever you want, not what I want. Because it's not about me 
or it's not about us. It's about Jesus being on his throne. So we're going to close our service as we close through the summer in prayer together. Now, you can pray quietly by yourself, and you're welcome to pray with others as couples or as friends. I'm not going to, this is not uh, rules of prayer at chapter MB. This is just inviting you to pray because churches that are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit are churches of prayer. So we want to get more and more and more into that habit in as many settings as possible. So I'm going to invite the worship team, if you would come up, and and you can pray up here. God's up here too, as far as I know. And uh, you can join me. And uh, we're going to pray over two things. We're going to pray about our own personal and corporate submission to the Holy Spirit and being students of God's Word. Those are the two main things. Submission to, being filled with, being controlled by the Holy Spirit personally and corporately and being students of God's word and then prayerfully choosing leadership with God's guidance. We're in that process right now and we need it. We need God's guidance. He knows who he wants in leadership. We may not, but he will show us as we submit to him and to one another and we honor one another out of love. He will make it known to us. So I want to invite you to do that now. We have just a couple minutes left. And so just 30 seconds to a minute of each of these things. And then we're going to close with a song together. So first of all, let's pray, submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit personally and corporately and recommitting ourselves to being students of God's word. Let's do that now. And then secondly, let's pray for God's guidance in selecting leadership. Maybe God is tapping your heart to make yourself available as a leader for such a time as this, so to speak. Would you be willing to allow your name to stand to provide leadership to our council or one of our boards? And so let's pray about that and ask God to raise up the leaders that he calls to this body at this time. Our Father, we thank you for the church, not just our church, but the church as a whole, the body of Christ that started so many years ago, and we're reminded from the beginning that if they were going to survive, they needed the power of the Holy Spirit and his guidance to be witnesses. They needed good leadership, not just yours, Lord. We know ultimately you are the leader, but human uh, men and women who can provide leadership at critical times in the life of a, of a local church and even at times the life of the church as a whole. And so, Lord, we thank you for your presence, Holy Spirit. And we choose to submit ourselves to you personally and corporately because we know that's what's best. It's always what's best. May we be living witnesses and may we be students of your word, Lord. Would you just just burden our hearts to just want more and more of you through your word. And we just can't go a day without it. 
we want to study it personally and corporately to learn and to grow what it means to be a living witness for Jesus. And Lord, we pray for the leadership that you will provide for Shafter MB. Thank you ahead of time for those that you're calling. May they respond to that call and may we follow your guidance in affirming that call for your body here at Shafter Mennonite Brethren Church. Thank you, Father, for this time you've given us to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.